Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so I'm not going to mess around. Let's get right at it. Later on in the show, we'll meet John Harvey. He's the bass player and lead singer of Monster Truck. The Juno Award winners are one of Canada's hardest working rock and roll bands, a reputation they've cemented by touring relentlessly. Their new single, Get My Things and Go, sounds like this. was Get My Things and Go, a new single from Monster Truck. It's available now wherever you legally buy and download great music. And we'll tell you all about it a little bit later on in the show. We'll also meet author K.L. Armstrong. She has written over 40 books, that's 4-0, including the best-selling young adult series, The Darkest Powers and The Darkness Rising, the young adult book Aftermath, the middle-grade novel A Royal Guide to Monster Slaying, and the adult thriller Alone in the Wild. On television, the sci-fi series Bitten was based on her book The Woman of the Other World. Her new novel is The Life She Had, a thriller about two women with secrets they really want to keep buried, but when a body is discovered nearby, they must move quickly to prove their innocence and protect the lives they've built for themselves. We talk about how she comes up with her intricate stories and characters, and why she sometimes writes under a pseudonym. First, though, I'll introduce you to Chris Strikes and Joella Crichton. Their movie, Becoming a Queen, which is now on VOD, is a documentary about Joella, Canada's most decorated Caribbean carnival queen. The film, directed by Chris, covers Joella's attempts to win a historic 10th title in her last ever competition. The movie explores expressions of cultural identity, Caribbean artistry, and a community struggle against a lack of understanding of carnival in the larger society. Chris Strikes and Joella Crichton join me via Zoom. Carnival for me is an opportunity to be free and express myself creatively. Carnival is an expression of my ego. Each individual representing specific bands will compete against each other to be crowned the king or the queen. The king and queen really is the ultimate. People see it as the Olympics of Caribbean culture. And I won it for the seventh time in a row. That's nine times winning. Nobody has done what she has done. It's really, really difficult to do what she's done. And I don't think people really get how much of a feat that is. Carnival is, um, and the Toronto Cuban Carnival is, um, you know, a celebration of freedom and emancipation for people. Um, my relationship with the carnival is um, I've been competing as the queen for quite some time, and that's what our movie, our documentary <laughs> is about. Um, the queen competition, it is an elaborate competition with very large costumes where we go on stage um, individually, one at a time, and compete. Your time on stage is about four minutes, and whoever is the winner of that competition becomes the queen of the whole parade. It's quite um, spectacular show. Chris, what's your relationship to uh, Carnival? I grew up going to Carnival as like, I guess, like a spectator. Um, you know, used to go with my mom back in the day as a little kid. And then and then with my friends as I got a little bit older and like in teenage years. And for me, and, and for our, our group that that we uh, that I grew up with, um, 
carnival was always the biggest thing every summer for us. So it was always the biggest thing. We, 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 we would get our outfits like months in advance. We get our shoes. We like, yo, we, yo, the new Jordan 11s are out, man. Like, yo, we saving these up till carnival. Like, you know what I mean? So, um, our relationship with uh, my relationship with carnival was just that it was just always the most important thing in the summer for us growing up in Toronto. And then as I got into film, uh, I started fil uh, filming the festival um, first, just for fun for myself, just because it's mm -hmm. just it is a spectacle every year. Um, but then eventually started getting hired to film Carnival and film different events, um, which then uh, uh, serendipitously led to doing this documentary. Tell me from both of your points of view, uh, how important it is to document this and to make sure that there is a record. Chris, I've read that when you were doing some research, you found that it hadn't been well documented, certainly in the early years. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. So it, it was really difficult finding um, uh, archives at all and then quality archives as mm -hmm. well, too, to be able to really tell um, a, a story in a feature length format because so much of our archives um, comes from the news, um, from news networks that do, you know, little, you know, 60 second pieces right. and whatnot. So right. even though they have a lot of shots, um, they, they, these shots are just very, very brief and don't really allow for like a longer segment. Right. And what's unfortunate is that a lot of these news networks have actually, and it's not just solely about Carnival, but even for other news topics, a lot of these news networks have actually lost a lot of their archives. Um, but yeah, it was really difficult finding archives um, from early years. Um, you know, I guess I guess just back then, like it, 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 the cameras and stuff weren't so accessible within our community right. in the way that they are now, um, which is unfortunate that we have that gap. So it's really, really important that like, you know, now in the modern time that we really take the time and the care to document our stuff and back it up and make sure it's there to tell stories going forward. You're listening to Chris Strikes and Joella Crichton on The Richard Krause Show. Their film, Becoming a Queen, is available now on VOD. Yeah, I think just on a personal note, um, it was really lovely to document my story and um, have that for future years for myself to look at. But right. I do think, um, you know, nobody had done this before. I had, yes, done some small little talks and, you know, snippets about what it means to be a queen. But um, when I was watching the film, I really enjoyed, um, you know, how historical it is and um, the artists that were able to, you know, speak their truths about what carnival means to them and how important the art form is. And so I think it's special in that way and, and, and really one of a kind. And what was it like to win as queen for the first time? You're 18 years old. It's a remarkable achievement. Okay, I was screaming my head off. I was like, <laughs> there's like a picture of me in the newspaper. And I just was like, I'm so like, over. like, I just never thought I could do it. Do you think that being a competitive skater prepared you uh, for this? Not only in terms of where your headspace probably has to be at, but physically, it must be very physically demanding. Yeah, it's, it's extremely, you know, demanding. And like one of the things about figure skating is that um, it's a very artistic sport as well. So there's an element of, um, you know, performance that you have to keep composed and keep yourself pretty well together. Even if you're like, oh, I think I just really hurt my hamstring. Right. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but um, there was a couple of times when I was, when, you know, when I was growing up and, and doing competitive figure skating and like, 
they call your name and you go out there and they shut, you know, the, the doors and you're out there all alone and it's all about you. And um, it's very much like that at the King Queen, you know, your name's announced and, and you're on stage. And even though it's a team effort and, and people work on the costume and, um, you know, you have people rooting for you, you really are um, putting on the show by yourself. And so it's, it's good to have some of that experience. Um, and that has really helped me you know, um, get through all those years and all those wins. This year's costume is called Harmony. The inspiration comes from the theme of the band, which is love. Hopefully it's a winner, guys. Two people vying for queen of this year's Toronto Carnival. We've got the seven-time reigning champ and the challenger over here. Should Joella win this year, this will be her 10th winning performance. Nobody in the history of Toronto Carnival has won 10 queens. Joella, tell me a little bit about the costumes here. I've always had my costume designed by Kenny Coombs, who um, I've worked with um, and, and really built a relationship with and also I'm super comfortable with. But most of the people competing in, in the King and Queen competition have a designer. And then from there, um, there's a team that builds the costume. They are huge. Mm-hmm. I, I know if you've never, I, I mean, when even when I say costume to people, like, it doesn't it's a structure right it's more than a costume it's a structure right you know what that's a good word i'm gonna start saying that to me i'm like it's a costume with with like a structure (laughs) you know as the years have gone on um there is something you know to say for the elaborateness and the ability for us to be able to make something that huge um something that people don't know is that they they don't get saved they you know, they go in the garbage. And, and so every year people have to, you know, sort of start from scratch. So it's, it's hours and hours of work and, you know, it's minute little details and some pieces don't have as much detail and some have a lot of details and it could take, you know, a week to finish one sort of like panel or one part of the costume. So it's, you know, the best way I can describe it is like a really, fancy house <laughs> on wheels that someone can that someone can carry um, and someone and can wear like yeah. yeah it's just it's it's all of the the glitter and sparkles and shine and 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 they can be designed in any way there's sort of like some people who do more fantasy kind of like um a costume that's sort of more of your imagination that's kind right. of what i do and then there's actual like practical things so sometimes people can be a plane or they could make a, a swan something like that where it's it's something that you can actually look at it and say okay i know what that is and then there's other people who can be more in fantasy which is sort of what i do you fell over backwards in one of these ones right okay you know the structure you mentioned mm-hmm. that structure pretty much like collapsed that's what happened and then that's why i felt the structure wasn't strong <laughs> <laughs> it's making me laugh talking about it. It's not funny. It was horrible. Yeah. It was a really intense and like sad um, experience to happen, but such a good learning lesson. And I think it's, I'm not the only person it's, that that's happened to. It's yeah. part of, you know, it's part of the drama of the, of the carnival and it's part of, you know, costume making and, um, you know, seeing, seeing somebody maybe not do well means that there's another opportunity for someone who may not have one to win kind of thing. Right. So that, right. It's all part of it, but yeah, I fell and um, I was disqualified. So it was, um, it was pretty, it was rather heartbreaking, but 
I think that sort of gave us the, um, the drive to come back the next year. And that next year was the year that I won my first queen. So that was Chris strikes and Joella Crichton on the Richard Krause show. Their film becoming a queen is available now on VOD. Let's meet prolific author KL Armstrong. She's written over 40 books, including a new novel called The Life She Had. It's a thriller about two women with secrets they want to keep buried, but when a body is discovered nearby, they have to move quickly to prove their innocence and protect the lives that they've built for themselves. In this interview, we talk about how she comes up with her intricate stories and characters, why her previous career as a computer coder helped her become a writer, and why she sometimes writes under a pseudonym. K.L. Armstrong joined me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about how book series like The Hardy Boys and The Bobsy Twins gave you a love of reading and gave you a love of telling mystery stories. I grew up reading absolutely everything I could get my hands on to. My preference was for animal stories and adventure stories <laughs> and things like The Hardy Boys. There were so many of them that it really fed that need. And there was a lot of them that had some really good adventure stuff in there, along with the you know mysteries, but some fun adventures that I didn't necessarily, I did also read Nancy Drew, but her hers tended to be a little bit tamer. Uh, so I gravitated towards the, uh, the uh, Hardy Boys. And what was it, do you think that that really inflamed your uh, imaginations. I love puzzles. I mean, I really love logic and puzzles. My former career, I was a coder. So lots of logic there. And that tends to be where my brain goes. So for me, mystery means that I am able to see if I can solve it before the uh, detective does. And do you think uh, that, you know, that logic and that that way of thinking uh, has come in handy. You've written so many books and they generally tend to have uh, thrillers and mysteries have complicated uh, stories. They have to just to keep the, the reader turning the page. And do you think it is the way that you think that you're able to kind of see the whole picture and see where all the, the puzzle pieces fit because of your experience as a coder and someone who thinks in that certain way? I think it can be partly that, but it is also that because I have that logical background, when I do a first draft, I can see where things go wrong mm. and I can go back in and fix them up and make it logical because the ideal position for me, whether it's a mystery or whether it's a big twist, a big reveal, is I want the reader to not necessarily figure it out too far ahead of time, mm -hmm. just be before the reveal is good, but not too far ahead. But I also want them to then be able to go back and say that makes perfect sense. So it's not a solution that comes out of left field. The way you describe the way that you write here, uh, I know that there's a difference between people who are writers who think visually and people who think uh, auditorily. So do you see the picture? Do you see the characters? Or as the writer Douglas Copeland told me one time, as he's writing, sometimes it feels like the characters are standing on his shoulders, whispering the dialogue into his ears. Uh, which is it for you? Mine is kind of a combination of them because it is for me uh, almost as if I am seeing a play and I am seeing the scene, I'm seeing the characters, I'm hearing their dialogue and I'm 
transcribing it, which means that the dialogue and the action comes easily. But because I'm seeing the scene, I don't necessarily put in all of that description. And then I have to go back in and say, oh, yeah, remind people what does this scene actually in my head look like. And over the sheer volume of books that you've written, I would imagine that your style of writing has changed, or at least the methodology of changing or has changed. And you've got a great quote here. You say that writing used to be very organic for me, but then I started getting deadlines. So how did getting deadlines change everything? And did it actually change the method and, and the way that you work? It did, because in those early days, I was writing whenever I had uh, had time. And the busier I got, you know, job, marriage, kids, the less time I had, so the less I was working. And then I was writing full time, and that was great, but the deadlines meant that I was not accustomed to this sit down every day and write. So I had to sort of get my brain into that. And once I did, it's become very easy for me. You're listening to K.L. Armstrong on The Richard Krauss Show. Her new book, The Life She Had, is available now wherever you buy fine books. I love to write. Absolutely love it. So I have no problem sitting down every day and writing. And I've learned how to quickly turn that switch on. It's that old, I think it's a Jacka London quote that is, you can't wait for inspiration to strike. You have to go out and, you know, with a, with a club. Yep. which is exactly true. Yeah. <laughs> is it like a muscle for you? The more that you do it, the stronger it gets? It is exactly. So I'm able to write more, write faster, think more, come up with newer, hopefully fresher mm -hmm. uh, ideas. Well, let's talk about the life she had. So here you have a, a thriller that we have uh, two very uh, distinct characters. There's uh, Celeste and Daisy. And I don't want to give anything uh, much about away about either of them but you have two characters who have backstories that may be unexpected as you read you learn about them and and uh they may not be what you thought they were at first blush so tell me a little bit about uh putting all of this together we talked about sort of your logical brain and how all that works but when you're creating these characters um do you know how they're going to react as you type the first line of the book, do you know what's going to happen to them? Or does that happen along the way? It's kind of 50 a 50. I have to know going in the basics of it. So for this story, I needed to know why is Daisy Daisy there? Why is she in that shed? And I have to know why it what is going on to with Celeste to give her an equally strong background. So I have that that very basic. But then as they come alive on the page, that begins to shift and change. Um, and then of course, again, going back and editing later to make it all match up. So it's probably 50% planning and 50% seeing what they do once they're on the, on the page. And while, while I said that my that I was a coder before, my uh, bachelor's is in psychology. So that mm. definitely helps in building characters. So you write under a pseudonym, K.L. Armstrong, uh, your name, Kelly Armstrong, that's the best-selling author. So tell me why the, the pseudonym, what happened there? <laughs> why the pseudonym? Yeah, it's because I am probably best known for writing 
books that have some kind of fantasy element in them. Mm. So I started with The Bitten, which is werewolves. Very, They are thrillers, but they're very clearly fantasy. Yeah. My next series was also fantasy. Um, I have some more mysteries in there, but even my mysteries are a little different. We, my uh, Nadia books are about a hit woman. My uh, Rockton books are about small town in the Yukon where people go to dis uh, disappear. None of these are what you would consider a very ordinary story about, about ordinary people in the way that these standalone thrillers are. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to, so the publisher in choosing that wanted to be clear that this, if you think what you know, what Kelly Armstrong writes, this is not it um and the kl armstrong it's not the most secret one so it's a pretty <laughs> open pen name that you can find it on my website i'm yeah. not hiding any of these you're not wanted by the law or on the run nope. or anything like not that yet. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations on all the success congratulations on the life she had and uh i you know I, that's a pace i am a writer as well it is a pace that i don't know that i could keep up i i'm i'm in awe a little bit of how prolific you are good thank you that was kl armstrong on the richard krauss show her new book the life she had is available now wherever you buy fine books in this segment we'll meet john harvey bassist and lead singer of monster truck now, if you're not familiar with their music, they are purveyors of fine rock and roll colored with blues and hard rock. The Juno Award winners are one of Canada's hardest working rock and roll bands, a reputation that they've earned by touring relentlessly. Their new single, Get My Things and Go, sounds like this. I could hardly believe it could happen to me. How was I supposed to know? Don't bother getting dressed, no need for more stress. I'm gonna get my Get My Things and Go is available now wherever you legally buy and download great music. In this interview, we talk about John Harvey's love of Grand Funk Railroad, why they recorded their debut album twice, and much more. John Harvey of Monster Truck joined me via Zoom. Let's go back. Let's give people like just a brief history of Monster Truck, just so we're all up to speed. We're all talking about the same thing. So... How did you guys get together originally and what common influences did you draw on? Because I love that one of your real influences in the early days anyway, was Grand Funk Railroad, a great band that people don't talk about enough. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the band came, uh, just a bunch of people hanging out together. We all played in the scene together in different bands. And uh, I actually never met our organ player, Brandon, until the first band practice i believe but we uh we just decided one night at a party that we were going to start a classic rock band because there wasn't really any you know now there's 20 you know but when, when in 2008 there was there wasn't many people doing classic riff rock so we thought okay let's do it and uh our guitar player is like let's call it monster truck and we said okay cool <laughs> so we started jamming and that's what we tried to do we tried to sound like deep purple we tried to sound like grand funk railroad was a huge one for us because like both of our my dad and, and our guitar player's father just were super into them and I, we'd never really heard of them because we're like who is this what is this band that's super popular shells sells out shea stadium faster than the beatles but i've never heard of them yeah you know it's like i know who black sabbath is but i don't know who this band is so we got really into them in our early 20s it was just grand funk all the time so it, it really helped and it really i think gave us that uh bombastic kind of edge to what we do 
that's what I loved about Grand Funk Railroad is those records were in your face. They were super oh, yeah. fun. They were party records and they were unimaginably huge when I was a kid. And then they just kind of like, it felt like they just fell off a cliff or something like that. But uh, yeah. go back and check those records out. And they're super fun. Oh, I love them. I mean, first time I heard the the Grand Funk Red album, I, I it still to this day blows my mind yeah. that there could be so many mistakes on an album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is like the most perfect thing i've ever heard it like takes you to a different place it's it's if you can't party as soon as you turn that on you're broken <laughs> yeah well i think that often uh mistakes are the things are, are, are that that make something great if it sounds okay. too produced if it sounds too perfect uh it's sterile it doesn't really have you know the kind of uh um gut that you want it to have or the soul that you want it to have I agree 100%. I think most of our most of the best things we've ever heard in rock history or music history even have been happy accidents. I mean, a lot of these things are just jams, like these famous melodies that you know from all these famous yeah. songs, like are just jams, guys fooling around. And yeah. that's the point. I think that made Grand Funk such a powerhouse is because it was just some guys in their garage, you know, like having a good time, having some beers, <laughs> apparently riding horses in between like recording really? sessions. Oh yeah. Mark Farner is like, it's, it's an interesting guy. Funny enough. I, I, I uh, watched a bunch of biographies. I'm like, who is this guy? But yeah, he was like all into horseback riding and shooting guns, like a good Michigan boy. I guess. Yeah. But yeah. That was the move. And is that how you guys work when you are creating new music? Uh, is it like get together, jam it out and see what happens or how does it work? I think we started more that way, but the way life is and the way everyone, you know, everyone's got families and things like that. So it's a, and, and people like to do different things. I mean, we're not all in the same country at the same time anymore. And it's like, now it's a little bit more thought out. Like mm. we'll have, like I'll bring a whole song or our, our guitar player will bring half a song and we'll put it together. And it, it's, a, it's a little bit less of a, a communal kind of thing. And I think, um, I'd like it to be a little more communal, but it's it's one of those things where it's like um, there there's other ways to get that satisfaction than it. Cause this is more, I hate to say it, but it's more of like, you got to put up good songs. Yeah, <laughs> You can't just be jamming up. Like, oh, okay. Let's throw out a record. Like <laughs> in our position right now with the state of music and the, and the way that, you know, all those tuning things and timing things, those are, those are there for a reason. So now it's a little bit more thought out. <laughs> You're listening to John Harvey of Monster Truck on the Richard Krause Show. Monster Truck's new single, Get My Things and Go, is available now wherever you legally buy and download great music. You guys are all from Hamilton. And there's something about Hamilton bands who love being on the road. I just think of Teenage Head when I was growing up, the greatest live band probably ever, uh, or one of them anyway, for me seen in a club and they played six nights a week anywhere that would have a stage anywhere that would let them play and that's i think one of the the great uh signifiers of their success is they played everywhere you could always see them and it spread the word far and wide uh, is that part mm -hmm. of monster because monster truck likes to play as well is that part of your uh deal yeah, we get we a lot more. Uh, we used to do it a lot more than we do now. Now we're a lot more selective about how often we're on the road. Just you know, yeah. families and things, and like trying to maintain normal life somehow. Because when you're doing eight nine months a year, like that doesn't sound like well, it does sound like a lot, but I mean it's you can do more. <laughs> but um, <laughs> eight nine months a year, you come home and you're just you're done. 
there's nothing you can do. You know, if you're out for two months and come home for a week and then you're out for three weeks and you're home for two weeks and then you're out for like, you know, a month and a half and you're, you know, the whole year's like that. There's no rest. You do that for six years in a row, you know, you come out of it with, you know, a drinking problem and a jet (laughs) permanent jet lag, you know, and it's just like, well, there's no way to, there's no way to get out of that. So we decided, uh, slower down, take a few steps back, but it's, we still tour more than most bands. And what do you learn when you're on the road? I mean, you just talked about, uh, you know, the drinking problem, the sleep, jet lag and all that stuff. But what do you learn while you're out there? Do you learn something about yourself while you're away from home that much or while you're just with these other guys who kind of must become like brothers after a certain point? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're, close. we're too close. But um, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're you're totally right. I mean, the weird thing is like, it just all turns into a, a, a mushy blur of like, like, I said, like four years. And yeah. then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, it's 2018. What happened? And, uh, you know, like it, it, it's, it's a weird vibe and there's no really way to get around it. So I, what I learned is if you don't stay healthy, you go crazy. So get out there, work out, drink so much water. And that's the only way that you can figure it out. I mean, yeah. I don't really, I don't drink when I have show days anymore. Usually, you know, maybe one after the show. I mean, you have to do that because like when people are, you know, <laughs> you get after a show and there's a case of beer yeah. every day for six years, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little easier now to just be like, you know what, I got a job to do and I got to stay healthy. I can't be, I can't feel like garbage tomorrow. You know, it's just not good for my life. Well, I think that part of that comes to you from aging too. When you're first starting out, you're young, you have this idea of what rock and roll is supposed to be on the road. And you want oh, yeah. to, and you want to taste that, and you can get sucked up in that. A lot of people still do. That's why all these, that's why all these rock stars have to go to rehab. It's not because they have these crazy personalities. It's because yeah. it's boring a lot of the time, and there's <laughs> booze everywhere. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. And that's the, like, you know, you're going out for lunch. What are you gonna do? Ah, I'll have a pint or whatever. And you know, it, it wasn't like we were all falling over all over the place. But like, you know, three pints a day is a drinking problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I get three pints a day, six years in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still yeah, being it, and, yeah, and 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 still having to uh, just give it every night while you're out there as well. So it's a yeah. it's a tough life. Yeah, it was funny, and I'm glad I'm behind me now. Now I just drink sparkling water. It's good enough. I wanted to find out what it was like playing shows, for instance, at a drive-in. Remember those? It was one of those ways that a lot of bands and comedians were able to do live shows and still have people in their own little bubble sitting in their car. I wanted to know what that was like as a performer. Well, it's it's a lot more, a lot less people, a lot more spread out. Put it that yeah. way. Even if they're sitting on the hoods of their cars, they're still, you know, car lengths <laughs> apart. So it, it was a vibe. It was fun because we hadn't had anything. And the light show was awesome. They had this huge screen behind us. And everything else was great that way. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's not the same as being there live. We just played in the UK uh, about uh, maybe a month ago now mm. um, at a big festival. And it it's crazy. It's crazy. You don't, you don't notice how wild an experience that is until it's taken away and then given back to you. you know? right. So why do you think, and th- this is an observation, but I've noticed the way uh, that you guys tour. And, and when I think of other uh, bands that are sort of riff rock and metal um, that they tend to do really well in Europe. There's still a huge market in Europe for rock music that I think is a little lesser over here. Is that your observation? I think there's just fewer people here. 
I you have <laughs> no seriously. There's 90 million people in Germany. Right. They dwarf right. Canada. So even if 30 million of those people like rock and roll, those festivals are going to be incredible. And yeah. those shows are going to be really good. And I think that's more of what it is. It's not like there's no rock fans in Canada. It's just fewer of us. Yeah. And then you play a festival. Uh, of course, country music is like Boots and Hearts is going to be the biggest thing ever. And a rock festival might do half or a third of that. But that's how it is. You know, yeah. that's the popularity of music and the way things go. I mean, in the 90s, Edge Fest was like crazy. I remember going like, and that was all rock. And it was yeah. all like, you know, and and uh, it's just goes in waves. It'll probably happen again where rock's popular. Who knows? But uh, there, I just think there's the population density is outrageous. So the new uh, single, Get My Things and Go, uh, would have been recorded, I guess, while you were in lockdown. And so how do you how do you work on things uh, when you're all working separately? Well, I, I, we waited. We went until they were lifted restrictions. We didn't really work. We just kind of stayed home, did our thing. And then as soon as they're like, OK, you can have 10 people in a room. We're like, studio. <laughs> but uh, it was it was one of those things. And we were, you know, always careful. But it's it's important to just keep living. So we were doing a lot of like, you know, Zoom calls and stuff. We wrote a song with a band in Kentucky over Zoom. Uh, uh. For It's called Cherry Tries. It's a band called Blackstone Cherry. We toured with them and we decided to do, write a song over Zoom. So we wrote a song over Zoom and released it and gave the money to charity. And uh, it, that was really cool. But that's that's the extent of like, I, I, I got to be in the room. You're listening to John Harvey of Monster Truck on The Richard Krause Show. Monster Truck's new single, Get My Things and Go, is available now wherever you legally buy and download great music. Uh, so tell me a little bit about writing Get My Things and Go. It's kind of, um, it feels to me kind of uh, swampy, bluesy. It, it sounds a little different from some of your other stuff. All the influences, you can still hear them. But the, the sound, the sonic sound itself is a little different. So tell me a little bit about putting this one together. Uh, I think it was quite easy. Um, our guitar player had a riff, which is the riff of the song. Uh, it starts with it. And uh, he was playing that for a while. And, and we were, I was like, okay, let's do that. Let's do that. And then we started write, I started writing words to it. I came up with this story of this guy coming home from work to find his uh, loved one in a compromising situation with someone else. And instead of losing his mind or whatever, he just gets his stuff and leaves. You know, it's more of like a, it's a tale of restraint, <laughs> we shall say. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, it just kind of flowed out. I mean, it, it's it's a story. So I I find that songs that are fiction and and story type songs for me are easier to put together because there's any combination of words. This thing can go anywhere. When I'm writing from real life, it's a lot harder to relate uh, my feelings to how they should. Uh, or properly communicated, sorry, through through the lyrics. But when I'm writing a story, it's super easy. You, you can do anything. You know, he could have lost his mind. Who knows? You know, but it went that way, and, and it, it ended up, uh, yeah, pretty cool. And we had a uh, well, aforementioned Blackstone Cherry, their guitar player Chris Robertson, and uh, their lead singer guitar player played uh, the guitar solo at the end. And uh, we just wanted to have some friends on the record, so it was a few of those. But um. He totally ripped it, <laughs> and he, it's it's a great solo, and uh, we were we were so impressed. So it, it it basically came together over you know two years of uh, piecework. We'll say <laughs> that's a I mean so different than how you recorded the first music that you ever recorded. You record the album, you have to record it again. Didn't you ditch the first recording well, of the first album? That one was two thousand. Yes, but we already had two EPs before that that we had mm. put out. But those ones were super rushed. The first two EPs were like, okay, we're a band, let's do it. Curiosity was was our first album. 
we went to we we got some producers you know went to la recorded at sound city did the whole you know waste a yeah. bunch of money thing and <laughs> it didn't end up working so we came home and did uh, our record with uh eric Ratz, who did our first two records and this newest record and it sounds like us and that's that the story of it was we went there with with not knowing who we were and then we came home uh with a good idea of who and was it just that thing where we now know what we aren't and that will help us define who we actually are? Yeah, I think that definitely that was a part of it. I mean, you know, as soon as we got there to L.A., a couple of guys in the band were like, we should just get out of here. And I was like, no, we committed to this. we got to do it. we got to finish it. And then to my error, that was probably we probably should have just got out of there and saved however many thousands of dollars it cost to put us up in an Oakwood. It, well, it's tough, though, to make that decision, though, just to go, because it is. It's costing a lot of money. You think, L.A., man, this is, you know, this is right. where, where it all happens. Like, it's where people go to make records. And and uh, then you do it, and it's not right. So tell me about, like, that meeting that you had when you're all like, you know what? We can't do this. We can't release this. It took, a, it took a while. It yeah. took a while. And it's finally the head of our label, Joel Carrier. He was also our manager at the time. It's like. Should we just do it again? Wow. <laughs> and everyone wow. in the band was like, let's just do it again. <laughs> well, it just, it, it was good. It, it, I mean, yeah. one day it'll get released and it's not terrible, but it's, you know, I, I wouldn't put that out as a, as your first record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you, what do you think it is that defines what monster truck is then? What was the thing that was missing from that recording that is, that plays so well and works so well on the, on the records that have come since then? I just think confidence. I think confidence had everything to do with that. I mean, we got there and no one was confident with what we had. Uh, the songs weren't fully done. It was just, it just wasn't there. And then by, by the time we went in and did the record again with Rats, um, he's got a good way. He knows how to talk to us. And we sorted all the songs out. So by the time we got there, we we're like, okay, that's the portal. You know, this is the winner. And we did it. And it was super, it was pretty quick. And then, uh, from what I remember, who knows how long it really was. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah it, it just when the pieces come together they come together and i think we at that point were so starstruck at the fact that we were in la yep. when you get to the studio and you start playing and it doesn't feel like you're awesome you're not going to be awesome that was john harvey of monster truck on the richard Krauss show monster trucks new single get my things and go is available wherever you legally buy and download great music Big thanks to John. Also, a big thanks to K.L. Armstrong. Her new book, The Life She Had, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Also, thanks to Chris Strikes and Joella Crichton. Their film, Becoming a Queen, is available on VOD. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.